0: the actions of the human race? From hunter-gatherers until today, what forces cause us to do the things that we do? Emeritus Professor Willie Thompson's new book, Work, Sex and Power, is a sweeping look at the span of human history, and it seeks to answer these questions. This book covers a lot of historical ground, and it touches on many interesting ideas. So it's really great today to be able to talk to Willie from his home in Ireland about it. Willie, thanks so much for taking some time out of your morning today to uh, have a chat with me. Not at all. It's been... um... Uh, your book, I guess, the, the one thing that it really reinforced for me, and it's something that we'll return again and again to in this interview, was the importance of the events approximately 10,000 years ago that, that and the changes that they brought to life. So I guess at the beginning, uh, could you go into what happened at that time and what impact did it have on people?
1: Yes, um, there was a shift from a foraging existence uh, to one of agriculture and um, stock raising with domesticated animals. Now, this was a process which began roughly 10,000 years ago in what we now call the Fertile Crescent, that part of the Middle East. Uh, but it also occurred in... Uh, the Indus Valley, and in the Chinese river valleys, and probably these were independent, although we can't be certain that there wasn't some diffusion, but certainly it also occurred independently in uh, the Americas, uh, both Central America and along the Andes. So almost certainly, uh, I think with uh, more or less complete certainly, certainty sorry, associated with the global warming that marked the disappearance of the last glaciation, or ice age in more popular terms. And what it involved, partly I think through pressure on the diminishing of former food supplies, like the great game animals that were hunted by Paleolithic hunters, Um, and also because new sources of uh, nutritional matter became available. Now, what this involved uh, was a different form of toil, a different form of lifestyle, and also uh, the growth of population, which eventually resulted in citification or civilization, and with it... uh, different types of social order.
0: Well, what, Willie, what was it about this change from this uh, hunter-gatherer lifestyle to the agrarian lifestyle that, that impacted our social life so much?
1: Well, what it, what it meant was that with um, stability uh, of that sort, a larger accumulation of stuff was uh, made possible, made available. And along with differences in hierarchy, this led on, uh, by a variety of processes, uh, to, uh, elites levying a tribute on the, uh, basic producers, uh, so that one form or another of forced labor became the dominant form of social relationship
0: yeah that's I mean I grew up with history books full of kings and battles and uh, but my my main takeaway or the main takeaway from your book is that for this past nine or ten thousand years human history has been mainly a history of forced labor.
1: Yes that is correct that is uh, I would say uh, if I can uh, describe the uh, the basic uh, structure of the book it uh, it's based on the uh, the contention that the history of civilization is the history of post-labor and, incidentally, misogyny. But it's also been structured by the two great economic revolutions, the one that we're just talking about now and also the one that uh, um, began about 300 years ago and uh, is still continuing.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll touch on that uh, in a moment just looking again about this 10,000 year ago turning point mm-hmm. uh, you argue that the the earlier hunter-gatherer societies in in those societies the potential for authoritarian power is really limited
1: yes and the examples of the still existing ones uh, support
0: that and then uh, when the circumstances changed we settle into this agrarian lifestyle and then the abuse of authoritarian power it suddenly and and almost unstoppably takes off everywhere. So, yes, yeah, so almost everywhere, my,
1: from the Pacific Islands to the Americas to Eurasia. Yeah, and my, my, question is, everywhere.
0: my question is why? I mean, why is it this system that comes to dominate and not others?
1: I think at one point uh, that there is, uh, to some extent, uh, a rationality to it, that if that uh, cultivation uh it requires to be uh controlled. It is a a process that uh needs organization. Uh it's not very pleasant. I mean hunting is uh, and gathering uh are not um on the whole uh extremely disagreeable forms of lifestyle whereas agriculture most certainly is and I know because I have actually uh worked then agricultural work uh, without uh, machinery, uh, and uh, it's unpleasant. It's exhausting, uh, and in a sense, it it is. There's compulsion involved. So, from one point of view, uh, there is a rationality in that. In uh, that kind of environment, uh, compulsion uh, becomes much more important than it does in a hunter-gathering. Uh, lifestyle but on the other I mean humans want to live more comfortably and uh, there is also a tendency to dominate others which uh, as I explained is very much guarded against in uh, hunter-gatherer lifestyles but there are these tendencies uh, uh, to dominance there is a again and this comes from being a social animal there's a a human tendency to want to stand well with other uh, uh, persons in the community, and that can easily translate into a tendency to do- to wish to dominate them. And the uh, transformation, the economic transformation, gave uh, the opportunity for these tendencies to develop. And when we move to uh, citification, which comes to the uh, concentration of economic A, restrict, a restricted area of which and goes beyond uh, simply an agricultural lifestyle, these tendencies become even more reinforced with a greater distance between the elites who do the organising and the ruling and uh, the basic producers.
0: Oh, okay, because the elites are just concentrated in the cities and are physically removed from the agriculture, from the land where the people are working.
1: Oh yes, very much so.
0: Okay, um, uh there is another aspect of this that you talk about that I, I would like to touch on, which is that um, like these elite groups throughout history, you say they've continuously and forcefully acquired uh, a greater or lesser part of the product of the basic producers. Um, just Can you just describe that for or just put that into some more basic words for me?
1: That um, the elite is able to demand from the basic producers, a proportion of the product, uh, whether that is corn or animals or handicraft uh, uh, creations, and uh, are are able to enforce that demand. For that purpose, of course, they need uh, enforcers uh, and also a bureaucracy to uh, keep track of the tribute that they exact uh, from the producers. Now, it's not it's not usually a system in which uh, the god-king or the person at the top uh, directly exploits the producers. The producers are exploited by uh, members of the hierarchy uh, lower down, and the one at the top, the god-king or whatever, extracts from them. But the flow of material stuff is upwards uh, until it becomes concentrated in uh, an elite, and particularly the top of the elite. And this is a process uh, seen all around the world in many, many different locations.
0: But that's the thing. Uh, this is the, the thought that I kept coming back to as I was reading your your book. Was that this seemed? I mean, why not another model? Why? What is it about humans? That- we we just keep going back to this model where a small group of elites have dominated the majority. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's a it's a sad uh, indictment on on us.
1: It is yes. Now there are instances uh, where the um, agricultural setup was such, and this may have been what it was like at first, uh, where the, there was a relative egalitarianism between. Uh, Family groups as a whole, but uh, one um, mechanism of uh, dominance and uh, social differentiation is the creation of debt. Now, all sorts of uh, natural problems and disasters can, can occur, and if one clan or the uh, part of a clan helps out another, uh, in a situation like that, because they happen to have uh, more stuff accumulated, then they uh, create a relationship of debt. And debt is very important indeed, uh, because if you're in someone's debt, then you are in a, in a position where you are under constraint to uh, repay them in one manner or another. And these, man- these possibilities are many and various.
0: Going through your book, I guess one of the other things that stuck out and was really highlighted is what a horrible time women have had. Indeed they have. Your comment that from the onset of agriculture at this period, like 10,000 years ago, that women then became possessions.
1: Yes, uh, the the possibility was created of them uh, becoming possessions in the way that um uh, is not possible in a forager society. Possession became a uh, moves beyond the possession of small things like your loincloth cloth and your spear uh, to possession of stuff in great quantities, and that can include other people.
0: Yeah, I mean, you you talk about them being virtually uh, a trade commodity.
1: Yes. Well, this is uh, this has been exemplified in many uh, cases where uh, sexual partners. Are effectively uh, traded between clans, and this may not this may not be a particularly oppressive uh, situation. In many cases, for example, among uh, clans and forager societies, um, there are all sorts of uh, incest prohibitions and very complex um, genetic relationships. And very frequently, the situation is that. The number of potential marriage, whatever we mean by marriage, uh, partners is, is very limited uh, because of uh, incest prohibitions that go far beyond the immediate family. And uh, this is a way of, uh, not saying it was designed as that, but it is a way of um, ensuring that uh, social interaction uh, in such societies uh, is relatively smooth. Now, that sort of thing, once uh, society, so social differentiation uh, produces elites and subordinates, means that the elites uh, can simply accumulate women as possessions. Uh, the possibility is there, and with the possibility, uh, there are inevitably individuals who will want to realize it.
0: Yes, as, as, I guess, a grimmer picture at times your, your book can illustrate, one, one thing did sort of made me realise that we have come a long ways is your comment that until the late 20th century, men could legally rape the women they were married to.
1: That, that isn't was the case in Britain, yes. Uh,
0: yeah, that, it just kind of opened my eyes that we, we, <laughs> we have actually made some progress of late.
1: I, I, I emphasise that point. We have made some progress of late, uh, but um, very conscious of just how fragile it is
0: it certainly is the amount of barbarism we have in our history is, is wow um you uh, uh so the last part of your book is uh i guess talking uh, about more recent history mm-hmm. and uh this emergence about three hundred years ago uh, of a of a larger scale resistance to authoritarian power with protests and rebellions and so why was it that this this emerged sort of more recently in our history and these protests and rebellions on a large scale didn't occur earlier on?
1: Well, I think it's partly material, it's partly ideological, you know, the uh, ideological uh, presumption that, uh, well, this is an exaggeration, but I think it it makes the point that the masses existed for the benefit of the elites, rather than the other way around, Uh, was quite a, a, a powerful one.
0: Um, so you mean so, that you, that, was the, that was what was believed by the masses?
1: I think that, yes, this was largely accepted. Not always, because as I, as I uh, point out in the book, uh, there is uh, uh, evidence of rebellions going back to ancient Egypt. Uh, so there was upheaval, and some really massive ones in, in China. But what these rebels had as their key demand was a, re- a return to the good old days, uh, of uh, a time when they were less severely oppressed than they were at the moment and a, d- a different set of rulers because the idea of the notion that uh, there must be elites and rulers were, you know, was pretty universal but uh, the idea that society can be transformed was one that only emerged alongside the second of the great Uh, Economic uh, revolutions, and which uh, was which which was uh, the uh, unlocking of the power of fossil fuels. Now, I'm not saying that one directly led to the other, but uh, so just
0: just to be clear, you're talking about the industrial revolution about three hundred years ago. I'm talking
1: about what's usually known as as the industrial revolution. But it's only really from the 18th century. If you compare the what's sometimes called rather inaccurately the English Revolution with the French Revolution. Now, the English Revolution uh, was ideologically uh, carried out in religious terms. The French Revolution uh, were concepts that happiness is a new idea in Europe, that society uh, could be t- over- overturned. And that the people, whenever you met by the people, and of course that was a big source of disagreement, uh, could rule. And, um, that, uh, was something that really was, uh, novel. Uh, there hadn't been any democracies since the very limited one of the ancient Greek polis. Uh, And uh, the idea that modern society uh, could be made economically more tolerable by um, a more equal division of uh, possessions, and at the same time it could be freed from all sorts of injustices and superstitions, uh, that became, of course, a dominant theme from the end of the 18th century uh, right into the end of the 20th century.
0: Willie, reading your your book, it it certainly made me uh, quite pleased to have been born (laughs) today.
1: Yes, you and I are among the lucky ones. Uh, My point would be that the majority of people who have lived uh, and uh, died Uh, since the invention of civilization have been its victims rather than its beneficiaries. But you and I are beneficiaries.
0: Yeah, hopefully we're on the cusp of some reasonable changes that uh, yeah, means that most people will enjoy the the benefits of that.
1: We want more people. I mean, that is what uh, the project is, for everyone to enjoy the benefit of what is being achieved.
0: Willie, uh, I thank you very, very much for taking the time to, uh, to go through and just talk about some of your ideas today.
1: It was a great pleasure. I love being interviewed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks, Willie. Willie Thompson is a former professor of contemporary history at Glasgow Caledonian University. His other books include What Happened to History and Ideologies in the Age of Extremes. You've been listening to me talk to him. Uh, My name's Craig Barfoot, and thanks for taking the time out of your lives to listen to this. Ciao.